Welcome to Manager Tools. Today's show, how to manage a massive workload increase. Part four, the conclusion of our series on this topic. Here we go. In the two stories we just told, success starting with someone believing it could be done, which is the absence of believing it can't be done, right? But most of us, when we're faced with a gigantic thing, we, we assume, well, it can't be done because we're living in the present and trying to project from our present state rather than thinking differently. Incremental thinking won't get you there when the increase you're facing is massive. And so we have a cast about assumptive goal setting came out in January of 2011, and we want you to review that cast, but because it's so critical to this one, we want to just highlight it briefly here, okay? And there are three key points in, in assumptive goal setting you've got to get. And it's all about not accepting that where you are is the only possible reality, um, but rather we need to get on the other side of the process we're going to go through and see it from that perspective. So the first thing we recommend is don't start with where you are. If you start by reviewing what you're already doing now, all of the ideas, or not all of them, but most of your ideas are going to spring from existing processes and procedures and systems. You'll be saying, I'll be creative in my little box of the, of the present that is on, the only present that's possible, okay? In the examples we mentioned, um, what do you think is a likelihood Mike or that GE engineer said, let's start with what we already have and just tweak it? They didn't, right? I mean, no. you, you can't yeah, just, yeah. just the word tweak alone for most of you think makes you think incremental, right? And incremental and massive do not go well together. So don't review existing stuff right away as a way of set level setting. Don't put your existing numbers on the top of a chart. Put them at the bottom. Beware of people saying, let's do some level setting or, hey, let's define the challenge or, or hey, let's do a process review to make sure we've got our process as tight as we possibly can so that this massive workload doesn't bust it. Keeping your process, defining the process tightly so it doesn't get busted is a waste of time because by definition, your process is going to have to be blown up. You're going to have to review every given assumption in your process, but you only want to do that after you've looked at it from the other way around. All those things, defining the challenge, level setting, process reviews, those are all incremental things. Don't have everyone bring lots of data to your first planning session. Look, folks, here's something that you probably never thought of. Data about the future does not exist and never has and never will. Data is truth and facts, and no one has any truth or facts about the future. The first meeting you're going to have is about the future and new ways of doing things. Not existing ways, but new ways. You don't need data about existing ways to talk about future solutions. You're going to come back to the existing ways. We'll look at that afterwards. But you got to get out in front of the thing first. Maybe you do a process scrub later. You look for every bloody tweak you can find. But you don't start there. We need big swaths. We need giant swings here. No sense sending a Lilliputian to do a Brobdingnagian job. I love saying that word, Brobdingnagian, which is from Gulliver's Travels, by the way. And for those of you who don't know who aren't literary, Gulliver was his last name. Lemuel was his first name. So, okay, that's the first thing. Don't start with where you are. A lot of you high C's, you're going to say, okay, let, you know, a lot of you high S's are going to say, this is where we are. Let's see what we need to do with this. It won't work. You got to flip it around. So point two, you've got to play a mental game of assuming you're, you've already wrestled this gigantic increase to the ground and you already have solved the problem. If you want to help your team 
uh, to be creative, ask them to brainstorm with you in a little bit different way. It's not that much different than normal brainstorming. Ask them to assume they've already won, that they're standing atop all the accolades they're going to get for solving this intractable problem, the massive new workload. Ask them to look down and see all of their envious contemporaries, because now they're not peers anymore. They're contemporaries (laughs) only. Exactly. Um, Right. Ask them to look down and see all the contemporaries looking up at them going, wow, we never thought you could do it. You, you high S's. Since I mentioned high S's, I'll be kind to them and say, feel free to ask everyone who's looking up at you to join you on the top of the heap to share in your joy because everybody's a winner. So picture in your mind that you're already there, that you've already done it. And then, and this is such a huge question. I love asking this question. Now you ask, okay, how did we get here? Or what would have to happen for us to be here? We are already here. So, oh my gosh, well, I, I, it's clear to me that that old thing we were doing didn't, wouldn't have worked. What could we have possibly done differently in order to get where we are now? What did we do? What simple changes did we make that beforehand we would never have thought of that unlocked all this ability and, and got us big chunks of the number um, solved? And look, general brainstorming principles apply here. No negatives, no judgments, nothing gets excluded. Peanut butter is a valid response. And if you if you don't know what that is, by the way, folks, we have an excellent cast on brainstorming. Uh, we published it in July of 2006. More is better. The answer is volume and not quality. The idea is to come up with as many ideas, even if they're stupid. I mean, how stupid is peanut butter when it comes to a massive workload increase? Unless you're making peanut butter, I guess. The key is just lots of ideas, because if you have 500 ideas, if you have two piles of ideas, one with 500 ideas in it and one with 10, what are the chances, what are the probabilities that the pile with 500 is going to have more really good and perhaps one great idea in it than a pile of ideas with only 10 ideas in it? So you've got to get around that. You can't start from where you are now. You have to shut that down quickly and go, okay, let's go look at the future a year from now. We've gotten through this. What kind of wild would we have to do in order to solve that problem, right? And suddenly people go, oh, well, there's no way we can solve it when when we do step forward. We have to ship it out to somebody else. So let's do that internally and let's let's automate that. Oh, you know, there's no way we can we can see that many customers if the standard is we have to do it face to face between two and five in the afternoon because that's what we've discovered. People are most available to to um, most willing to have a chat with us. So we've got to get rid of the two to five rule. And by the way, we're allowing 30 percent of these to be done over the phone. Okay, there are some customers who are okay with being contacted over the phone. Right. And, and and there was a good reason for why it was always face to face and always between two and five in the afternoon. But there's a good reason why we can't do that anymore, because if we do that anymore, we will fail. And you knew, right, as you as you said, Mike, you knew you would fail if you believed everybody's saying it can't be done. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, OK, so talking about failure and negatives, let's 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 really blow people's minds here, because this is the one that um, I think people really want to give us a little bit of pushback on because you're suggesting that the next step is decide what you're willing to get in trouble for not doing. And I thought this was risk-free manager tools. I thought this was <laughs> peaches and cream and bed of roses. You're saying I, I may get in trouble? <laughs> Come on. Yeah. I'm sorry. The, the truth in advertising, this is not risk-free. Yeah, you're right. Um, look, <laughs> <laughs> you threw me for that one. I've forgotten about risk-free. Um, look, the risk doesn't come from what you do as a manager. The risk comes from that 900-pound gorilla that's just been dropped on your desk. If you do nothing, believe me, he's going to take your head off. The point is, is that 
There's all sorts of risks. The question is, what's the big risk, right? Right. It's a risk exactly. mitigation strategy. Yeah. You can't get a risk, get rid of risk. Yeah, exactly. You can just address <laughs> the risk with the best, the biggest probability. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, okay, think of it this way. Now that you've got your mind right, which is to say positive, you've got your team clear on what you expect, you're leading, you've got some ideas, maybe some crazy ideas, maybe some doable ideas, maybe some interesting ideas, maybe who the hell knows, but the rules don't apply when the fertilizer hits the fan, so we're going to try some things that might be silly with our fingers crossed kind of ideas, right? Now you've got to look from the bottom up. You've been up until now, we've been kind of being top down, and now we're going to look from the bottom up. Assumptive goal setting can help you work backwards from the top down, but what comes next? Okay, all you, you, this step, step eight, you cannot do this step first. It has to follow everything else we just talked about. It only has value if you've gone through all the process before and you've thought clearly about what it would be like on the other side and you've tried to be creative and so on. If you've skipped to this point, hey, I need to figure out, you know, one of the things I can do, I can just jump right to, hey, how do I, you know, what stuff can I start drop doing? If you, if you start dropping things and you haven't first thought, what are the things that I need to do that are really important? What, what are the big creative ideas? You may be dropping the wrong things. So look, let's go back. Remember our first point, it seems like it was forever ago, about the balls at the bottom of the pyramid being forced out by more important work, right? The cascade of delegation that keeps organizations working on the right things has to constantly through a force through a process of uh, old things dying and new things growing in their place it has to force old dead bad work habits and processes or maybe not old and dead but old and nearly dead or old and relatively low value if not no value and maybe not bad work habits but less effective work habits uh, and processes and work that's being done out onto the floor where no one will have to do it okay Folks, we can promise you there are things being done right now in your organization, even better, right now under your nose, and you're doing some of them that are not only not creating any value, but because they take man hours, they are destroying opportunities for potential value. It's a double whammy. You get no value out of the thing you did, and you lose an opportunity to create value. It's it's really bad. Most people say, well, that didn't really help a lot. Well, it hurt because you weren't doing something that helped as well. These are the things that everybody does that keeps them fully busy, right? Working on your C-level tasks. And, and frankly, apparently being busy is important because everybody tells me all the time how much they are. I believe people, if, if, if a bunch of people who are listening to this right now suddenly found themselves not very busy, I bet the first thing they do is get nervous. They wouldn't look for more work. They'd get nervous. Yeah. But basically, it's funny how those things that we do when we're avoiding maybe the, the the type A work, the really important work, the real high value work, those things definitely fall away when we get assigned to an interesting project or a big task or something like that. People are like, oh, I don't have to worry about that. I got something fun I can do, right? Everyone in your organization right now is doing one, two, three, four, even more things that add no value, take time in which they consider important simply because they are doing them. You know, Mike's told that story many times at conferences of taking over an organization at a huge firm. He had 150 folks, and, but recently the organization had been down from 450, right? 450 down to 150. And part of the reason he was there is because he was a good manager and leader and they needed somebody good to lead a group of 150 to figure out how to get 450 people's work done. Same workload, obviously looking, right? Mike's looking for resources to be freed up. And he discovers a report that wasn't being read by anybody. And yet three of his folks, 
$250,000 a year in compensation, were doing nothing but that report. Now, look, what are the chances that they had been clamoring week after week after week after week? You should be looking around. Nobody's reading our report, right? Actually, fire me, fire me, fire me. Yeah, Yeah, right. I mean, particularly after the giant layoff, right? They basically felt like they had been shot at and missed. Right. And, and probably there was a little bit of guilt, but they also had families to feed. And so they were being smart. They were being politically wise about not raising their head too high above the trench. But look, in Mike's mind, he finds out this resource isn't being, or the, the, this report isn't being read. And suddenly he's got three more new resources available. And, and folks, stuff like this happens all the time, every day, everywhere, right around you. And you do it too, in terms of making yourself as a resource less effective. Our jobs as leaders during times of these massive workload increases, because of whatever reason, layoff or new customer or whatever, it includes reviewing what does get done and then looking at it very carefully, finding out what needs to not be done. Now, for you as a manager or for a senior manager, an executive or a leader, this might mean even delegating several of your balls uh, in your box to your directs, which will in turn force them to do the same. Now, if your directs are individual contributors, you may have to work with them to identify what they're doing now that you want them to stop doing. Now, look, they they might protest and you'll have to tell them these things you've been doing are now my responsibility. I'm letting you off the hook for doing these three, four or five things. We're not going to do them anymore. We're going to delegate them to the floor. I'm betting no one is going to notice. Okay. And now look, folks, our, our assumption here is you're limiting low value stuff like reports no one reads or, you know, new projects that probably could be put on hold until we get, we handle this big new thing that is facing us. And, and you go on and you say, if they do notice, if somebody does notice and complains that you're not doing something, send them to me and I'll take responsibility for the failure. I'll tell them I told you to stop working on it because, oh, by the way, look at this 900 pound gorilla we're all wrestling with here. I'll try to keep them off of our backs. And frankly, I'll try to talk to each of them and try to talk them out of making a big damn deal out of it. But as far as I'm concerned, you're off the hook for now doing this. Don't let me catch you doing it. I want that time back to be focused on this big new problem. Maybe doing some stuff incrementally as well as keep trying some of this creative stuff we're going to see to see which if any of those ideas work. Okay, now now let's be clear about something, though. We're not saying here that when you take responsibility for these things that you're direct, this individual contributor used to do. By the way, you don't give this speech to a manager who works for you. It's only for individual contributors because they're the ones that are going to have to delegate things to the floor. We're not saying that even though you're taking responsibility, you're now going to do these things. You're just taking responsibility for them. And frankly, folks, you take responsibility for stuff all the time and then don't do it. You know it. But you're not going to do them. You know, now look, if you get in a lot of trouble, okay, you're going to have to pick it back up. But we'd be willing to bet, as, as Mike shared with his example, you're, you're probably not going to get in a lot of trouble. The executives who aren't reading the report are not going to complain about not getting it. <laughs> and we're joking about reports. There are thousands of other things that, that uh, could be true, like driving to the airport. And look, here's where we get to the heart of the matter, right? You might, it's such a lovely big word, might, <laughs> you might get in trouble for not doing some of these things. It's possible. But think about your, think a moment about your world before this new massive onslaught you've got. Of all the work you and your team were doing, think about this now, folks. Which work of all the stuff, and I'm not talking about the major responsibilities. I'm talking about workload analysis, the, the work that each person's doing, the tasks that each person that works for you has been working on all along. Okay. 
of all those tasks, which tasks would you most have wanted to get in trouble for? Assuming you were going to get in trouble, which tasks would you choose to get in trouble for before all this extra stuff got dumped on you? And let me put it differently. Would you like to get in trouble for the big important things you worry about every day? Or would you want, would you like somebody to catch you doing poorly something that's relatively small that you don't spend a lot of time on? Right? If you're rational, we know your answer. You're going to choose to get in trouble for the small things. So if you add this new pile of stuff to your big pile that you're already working on, isn't your approach to it essentially saying it's a top priority? And that means the stuff you ought to be not doing and be willing to get in trouble for not doing was all the stuff that wasn't important before. And it gets forced to the floor. Okay. Well, now, look, we, we don't want to get you in trouble, but, but in times of high stress, chances for trouble go up, right? If your chances went up to 50%, in other words, flip a coin whether or not you're going to get in trouble any given day and you don't know, but 50% of the time you're going to get in trouble for it, you used to be, let's say your chances for trouble were only 20%, right? One in five days you're going to get in trouble, but now it's every other day you're getting in trouble. Wouldn't you want to think or at least start thinking about where you'd want to take that pain? What do I want to get in trouble for? Sit down with your team, both as you know individually and one-on-ones and also as a group, and start dropping things. Managers drop in the form of delegation, and individual contributors drop things to the floor. Basically, nobody does those things that get dropped to the floor, but the manager then takes responsibility for them. We call this crisis workload triage, and it works great as long as you come to it on the right road. And frankly, folks, we're going to bet that nobody's going to notice. Okay. If somebody does notice, okay, fine. Just look, take it back first, up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Look, if somebody doesn't notice, then leave those balls on the floor forever and ever. Amen. Okay. If somebody does notice, well, shoot, pick the ball back up. But you know what? Don't complain to us about having to pick a ball back up when you drop 40 of them and you've had to pick two of them back up. Those other 38 are now time available in your resources, in your human resources, if you will, for you to be able to attack this gigantic, gigantic, gigantic problem. You're going to get in trouble. Don't get in trouble because you incrementally tried something that you knew fundamentally would not work, that really, frankly, it's duplicitous for you to keep doing some incremental change to address a 40% workload increase. Okay. Don't get in trouble because you know, you're going to fail, get in trouble because you're being creative and you dropped a lot of stuff that you fairly analyzed to be of lower value. If somebody wants to argue with you about the relative value, okay, let's have that discussion, but don't get in trouble because the most important thing your organization does, you know, have to do more of it. And now you're failing on every single one of your key metrics. Don't do that. You know, it just occurred to me, don't fiddle while Rome burns. That's what it boils down to. And and there's a lot of fiddling happening in your organization. Mike and I do it, and Wendy, Wendy and Maggie do it. Everybody we know does it. And when you get this much new work, when you get this much new stress and pressure, you have to put down the things that you may be doing, but you also know secretly don't add any value. Yeah. Don't fiddle. While when you're in this situation, burns. you have to make choices. Yep. And sometimes we can go through life if our workload is... Uh, allows us to where we don't have to make tough choices. And in this case, you don't have that luxury anymore. Yep. Oh, well. Exactly. Now, there's a huge danger when these landslides occur that a lot of people miss, right? It's not too hard to handle, but folks miss it, right? You get a yeah. lot of new work, like this big pile, this new big ball coming down, and you start working the work, right? That makes sense, right? You just start getting it done. If you're a little clever, you're a little better than the average manager, right? You plan your approach, right? So you've put a plan together and then you're 
working your plan, right? Yeah. And you get busy, you can barely get it all done, but if you work really hard and you focus on it, you can get it done, right? But you're not measuring what you're doing, right? I mean, yeah. you're working so hard. Who, who needs to do that, right? Right. The pile is so big. Yeah, it takes time to measure. Right, yeah. right. The only measure that matters is getting through the day. One more thing done. One more thing done. You know, I, I, I don't really have a way to address this gigantic thing. Secretly, if I think about it, it's going to crush me, but boy, I got one more thing done. So I'm, I'm plan, I'm, I've planned my work and I'm working my plan and, you know, head down, head down, head down. Yeah. Since there's a ton of risk and you understand there's a ton of risk, why would you want to measure it just to reinforce this, the stress you feel from the risk? Yeah, exactly. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why make obvious all of my failures. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And, uh, Unfortunately, folks, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. You, look, folks, you've got to measure what you're doing. When you change the way you're going to approach something, when you're going to do something different, there's so many reasons to measure. The first reason is your margins for error are much slimmer now because you've got much more work with the same amount of resources. You can't afford to go off in the wrong direction for weeks with twice as much work as you used to have and end up in a situation where you literally can't get back into the game. So you've got to measure and be careful about to trust your measures and say, okay, maybe we're going in the wrong direction here. Let's, let's relook this. The second reason is you're using new techniques, new processes, new systems, whatever. Ones that may not easily fit into whatever ways you've been measuring things up till now. So you'll need to come up with new measures, measures for the work that you're going to be doing. In fact, don't assign a new work or a new way of doing something without also assigning, hey, look, you've also got to spend some time measuring, reporting on it so we can see whether or not this is something that works. In other words, if we try five new things, let's have data on all five after we've tried them for a couple of weeks and say, wow, the one we thought was the weirdest. Apparently, it gets the highest volume. And as long as quality okay, let's take two of the people that are working on two of those other ideas that we had, take them off, and let's triple our workload on the one idea that seems to be getting the most results and see how much faster we can go. Although, folks, I'm not suggesting the mythical man month actually exists, right? Third, look, third reason to measure, if it does go poorly, you want to know specifics of what went wrong. Measuring will give you that. It'll help you understand that. And and fourth, look, here's the big one, in my opinion. If things do go well, you want proof that you are, in fact, handling the problem rather than just hearsay. Oh, things are actually going pretty good, boss. Everyone says things are looking good when they first attack the big beast that's fair, staring us all in the face here because they know positivity matters, right? Oh, yay. Everybody's positive all of a sudden. But if you want to be taken seriously talking about really noteworthy success, you better have some data. You got to remember, everyone else is assuming you're going to approach this incrementally and they're going to essentially tolerate some form of failure, even though you're supposed to be working as hard as you possibly can. If you're going to be doing things differently, you're going to have to have proof because people don't like the nail that sticks up. There's an old joke about, you know, the nail that gets hammered is the one that's sticking up the most. The best person to figure out how to measure stuff differently for you and your team or to measure the stuff reasonably well to start with is you. So we're not suggesting that you can ask for input from the team, but probably this is a task best left to you. Maybe you could delegate it to your trusted number two if you have one. He or she could make a difference for you. But you've got to remember, think of two things when you're thinking about measuring. First, what are we measuring? Okay. Some pools of data lend themselves to samples, some to strings of data, some to charts, some to time functions, some to variances, some to volume, uh, some to quality per sample, some to batch, right? Uh, um, Second, though, 
and this is where your insight will help, is who will be the most likely consumer of this of these measures, assuming that you're going to report the measuring that you're doing. And ask yourself, what does that person or what do they want? How do they consume data? What are their fears relative to this new beast you're facing? This is going to help tailor your work around measuring rather than just saying, here are the three ways we can measure this. If your boss is somebody who only wants one big number, make sure you measure for one big number. Or if your boss is really particular about quality, make sure you have a quality measure in there. Even if you're not certain that that measuring that will actually help you, at least you'll have data. And if you start getting wins, but you're not reporting something your boss is understanding, he or she may not support you. And I hate to say it, people are not going to believe you're actually doing it. They're going to think you're fussing around with the data. Yeah. Because everyone assumed it couldn't be done. And so if it can't be done, then you showing, uh, just saying it is being done, they're like, yeah, yeah, show me data. Well, yeah. then show them the data. And they'll be like, oh, okay. And then suddenly people start coming to you and saying, how is it you're doing that? Well, I listen to this podcast. No, right. I'm kidding. Yeah. In, don't, in, don't in say times that. like these, assuming that you're getting this big ball, there are probably a lot of your peers in up the chain who, are, who have these big balls as well. So it's maybe the whole organization is in somewhat of a crisis. And in times like that, folks, I mean, emotions, we like to think they don't take root, but they do. Even senior executives, emotions get really, really involved here. And the person who has data can focus the conversation on what's actually happening. And yep. You don't want to be stuck without data when, you know, accusations are flying about who's doing what and who's not doing what they need to do. You got, you got some measurements. It doesn't solve everything. You, to, look at you high C's. Don't for a second think this means that in this case, relationships aren't important. They are, but data helps as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Data will say, Hey, I trust our relationship enough, uh, or I know our relationship is important and I want you to have what I know you need rather than just me cheerleading for my team. Yeah, and in a, in a time when all these emotions are going on, you got to report more as well. You have to communicate more, right? The tendency is you want to sit there, you got a bunch of work to do. Let's get the work done, and let's don't spend a lot of time doing the reporting because we got to get the work done, right? If I can't right. get the work done, I got nothing to report. Well, yeah, f- that's <laughs> that's a bad road. I've been down there fairly yeah, recently, me actually, too. and it doesn't work. Yeah. There's an old saying about high eyes uh, that they put their best foot forward only to drag the other one behind it, right? And the same is true for a lot of us as managers who measure things and then don't report on that, right? It's not good. Now, we're not suggesting every measure is supposed to be reportable. Although, if you want to be bold and have mighty forces come to your aid, measure everything and let people come look at it. Post it on the web as we, we've alluded to before, right? Okay, so look, reporting is an un- unsung hero in management. If you measure it, report on it. Frankly, most people are going to ignore your reports, particularly if other departments around you are dealing with the same workload increase that you are. Everybody's too busy. But the flip side of reporting or not reporting it isn't the opposite. If you do report, people aren't going to look at it. But if you don't report and it's discovered you were doing something a little differently, now it looks like you were hiding something. It doesn't have to be true. It just looks like you are. In fact, of course, you weren't, but we don't see the world the way the world is. We see the world the way we are. Other people will ascribe to you the venal motivations they had, which is, I'm not reporting on this because I don't want people to know what I'm doing. And look, everybody, I mentioned already, everybody's got an internal website now. Post your efforts and successes and failures right up there. If there's project software up there that you can use to 
post things, fine, do it. Make sure your team knows what's there. Allow them to post measures and reports. When I said earlier about you create the measures, you create the measures, but then you, when you assign work, you assign the work, the measuring of the work and the reporting of the work all at the same time. Trust me, the measuring and the reporting isn't that big a deal. I know techno people always say, as, as Mike said, right? How can I get the work done if I'm always reporting on it? Work always includes by its very definition. The very definition of work is not just the work, but the reporting of the work being done because that's the whole point of specialization of labor in large organizations. Your work alone does not create value. It's the creation of value that happens through 50 different connected tasks, which have to be communicated as being done or not done that make a difference that create value. Nobody's going to think you're hiding anything. And some people might be pretty impressed if you have people posting measures and posting reports on things. Go over it during your weekly staff meetings, okay? Have enough confidence to show your losses. Hey, we're red here and here and here, but on the other hand, we're green here and here and here, and I, I think that's going to get us a long way. You know, no one's going to think you're hiding, and if you show your losses, people are going to think, wow, right? You're confident, but actually, that's not what you're doing. You're just being professional. It's not confidence. It's just professional. Hey, I'm doing it. And so it's if I'm saying it's worth doing, then I'm saying it's worth being reported on and measured. If you're really not hiding anything, you don't have to spend any time hiding anything, right? You don't have to worry about who you're going to tell what to. And one more thing about reporting. I've noticed that managers think carefully about, okay, who I'm going to send the report to and so on. Great. Make sure, remember, make sure that some people will read reports and some people want to be given verbal reports and think for a minute about you've sent the report out to six people. If you send it to me, I'm probably not going to read it. But then if I hear something in a briefing, I might ask some questions. And so be ready for a lot of people whom you send it to not to have read it, but nevertheless, they'll be interested in it. And if you're, if you're of a mindset, hey, if I send it to you and you don't read it, you're not interested in it, that's false. In my world, it's false because I just don't want to read it. And so I'm going to wait for you to brief me on it. So keep that in mind. And it may be, if you start having successes, you may want to do a verbal briefing to your boss or have your boss come to a staff meeting to hear some of the things that perhaps you've been sending her, but that she hasn't been reading because she's a high eye like me. Good. Now, it's, it's like I said earlier, it's not all peaches and cream and a bed of roses. It's going to be tough. Right. There are yeah, going to be is. tough, tough times. And you're going to have setbacks. And one of the things that distinguishes great managers and leaders from the pack is that they never give in. They never give up right. in this face of adversity. And you're going to have it. Right. Yeah. This is going to take longer than you want. Your energy is going to flag along the way. You're going to face setbacks. You're going to lose faith. After the first few days, the energy that you get of, hey, with this plan, we might just have a shot at this thing, is going to turn into daily drudgery. It's more work than you and your team have ever faced. Look, you will help your cause most in those moments by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps straps, and setting an example of energy and positivity in front of your team. You can actually tell yourself, I'm going to, I'm going to show a lot of energy. Then you'll be positive and you'll show a lot of energy and you'll realize you just behaved your way into having energy and feeling positive about things. And this cast has been mostly about management, but also about leadership a little bit. And so our last comment is be a leader and never give in. We want you to be a great manager. And at times like this, if you're a great manager, you have a shot at being a great leader. And that means never, never, never giving in. And if you need help along the way, send us an email, come to the forums. We'll be happy to help. Cool. That's and, it. Yeah. And folks, if you haven't found yourself in this position yet, 
Trust me, you will. Yeah, you will. You will. You will exactly. And actually, in a lot of ways, it's a good thing. If your if your firm isn't growing by leaps and bounds, sometimes it's new business. That's not always a good sign. So look, quickly wrapping up, you got to make the right choices. You've got to be positive minded. You got to meet with your team and tell them you're going to get through this and that you expect them to be positive as well. Don't complain. Don't blame. Don't whine with your direction. Don't whine at all. And don't tolerate them whining either. Please don't assume everything can't be done. Don't sit where you are and then incrementally try to tweak something and then wonder why you're failing when secretly you knew you were going to fail. Assume things can be done. Use our assumptive goal setting technique. See it from the other side and you'll you'll be able to get there. Suddenly you won't have to drive to the airport anymore. <laughs> Not because you want to be you want to ride in luxury because you don't want to die. Decide what you're willing to get in trouble for not doing. Measure and report more and never give in. Look, folks, the massive workload increase is a modern parable for the difference between a great manager, or at least one capable of greatness, and the manager who simply wallows in indecision and regrets, okay? When we're asked to step up, the first response of greatness is to not look for excuses, to not blame the organization, not ask why, right? But rather to embrace reality and to ask, okay, how do I do this? It can be done. Perhaps that idea alone is the font of this entire cast. If we're willing to embrace the belief that it can be done, everything gets easier after that. And if you don't have it, everything's impossible after that. You know, I was reminded when I was writing this a bunch of times, I I ended up writing it in the beginning. I often write the end of the cast uh, halfway through it because I want to make sure I, I, I have a thought and I... I don't want to share a great ending thought too soon in the cast, but I've been thinking about this the entire cast. One of our favorite corporate logos and slogans is from Leo Burnett, the advertising agency, who um, for Americans of, of, of a certain age, they know Tony the Tiger and the Rice Krispie Guys, Snap, Crackle, Pop, and also the Jolly Green Giant, all mascots for American food products. And um, Leo Burnett, the man, invented all three of them in the heyday of American television advertising in the 50s and 60s. And, and um, the logo of Leo Burnett is a hand reaching up towards stars. And the motto of Leo Burnett company is reach for the stars. You may not get one, but you won't end up with a handful of mud either. Get out of the mud, reach for the stars and see what happens. You may end up back in the mud. We're not guarantee you that it, it'll work, but we guarantee you'll fail if you don't try it this way. Absolutely. All right, my friend. Thanks. Thanks, partner. All right, man. We'll see you. Thanks, everyone. That's it. If you haven't joined us on the discussion forums lately, check it out. www.manager-tools.com forward slash forums. Great place to ask all your questions and get great answers on everything that has to do with management. All right, folks. We'll see you next week. So long. <laughs>